Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We will now have our final session of the IPS Women's Conference, which is a closing dialogue featuring Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law, Mr. K. Shamugam, and Ms. He Ting Ru, Member of Parliament for Sunkang GRC, Chair of Sunkang Town Council, and the Deputy Organizing Secretary of the Workers' Party. They will share their views on what they see as key issues for gender equality progress in Singapore. The closing dialogue will be moderated by Professor Libby Kong. Professor Kong is a Singapore Management University's is, is Singapore Management University's fifth president and the first Singaporean to lead the 21-year-old university. She is also the first Singaporean woman to head a university in Singapore. Professor Kong, over to you. Thank you very much. And a very good afternoon to everyone. Welcome back to this closing dialogue session. Uh, thank you indeed for joining. We've had a very interesting day with three sessions of this IPS Women's Conference 2021. The three sessions have focused on different areas. The first has focused on equal work and equal pay. The second has focused on home is where the work is. And thirdly, um, the session just before this centered on mindsets and minefields. We're very delighted to have this afternoon two distinguished speakers who need no introduction. Um, we will have an hour and a half with them and I will um, very quickly say how the session will proceed and then we will get on with it. I will begin by inviting each speaker to make some short remarks of about 10 minutes each. And if all goes according to schedule, we will have actually about an hour or slightly more for Q&A. I would like to say that um, Pigeon Hole is already open and live, and we will take questions via that platform. You do not need to wait for the remarks by each of the speakers to be over. Please feel free to type in your questions, um, and you can also vote on the questions that interest you. Questions, of course, with a higher number of votes may stand a better chance of being answered by the speakers. So um, with that out of the way, uh, we have with us today, as you've heard, Minister K. Shanmugam and Ms. Herting Wu. Uh, let me begin with Minister Shanmugam. Uh, he needs no introduction, but let me at least do the courtesy of saying that Mr. K. Shanmugam is Singapore's Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law. He was previously also the Minister for Foreign Affairs. As Minister for Home Affairs, he oversaw a comprehensive overhaul of the penal code to confer greater protection for vulnerable groups, including women and children. In September last year, he launched the Conversations on Singapore's Women Development to kickstart a national effort to understand Singaporeans' aspirations and ideas on how we can further advance our women in Singapore. He announced that there would be a comprehensive review of issues affecting women with the ultimate aim of bringing about a cultural and mindset change on values such as gender equality and respect for women. May I now introduce to you, or may I now invite Minister Shanmugam to address us. Thank you, Professor Lily Kong, I'm President of SMU, and Ms. Herting Ru, MP for Senkang GRC, and Mr. Jandas Devan, Director of IPS Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. Very good afternoon to all of you. As you heard, nine months ago, we started these conversations on Singapore women's development to look at how we can better deal with the issues that women, old and young, face. 
Since then, we have held more than a hundred conversations. Several thousands of women have taken part, men too, and they have shared their views candidly. And this IPS conference is a continuation of the conversation. And I thank IPS for organizing this inaugural women's conference and for inviting me and the others. And it's a real privilege to be here. I'll start with this question. What is the position of women today in our society? I would say you know, the glass is maybe two thirds full, maybe a bit more, uh, and that isn't enough. We need to do more. Some areas we have done very well. Take women's education. About 50% of our graduates were women in 2019. Literacy rate for women, 96.1%. If you look at the 2020 UN Human Development Report, Singapore is ranked 12th out of 162 countries for equality between men and women. And that is ahead of developed countries like the US, UK, New Zealand, Canada. Uh, but in that context, why did we start on these conversations? And having started on it, what should we focus on? Why did we start? Some of you will recall the case involving a dentistry student earlier last year and the series of voyeurism cases in our universities. And you heard Monica earlier on her own experiences. There was much discussion then on the penalties the defendants should face and the relevance of factors like, oh, you know, the uh, defendant has a bright future, it was a moment of folly, and so on, and how much these should count in mitigation. And it set me thinking, it set us thinking, you know, the framework on how we approach these, there's got to be a more philosophical, fundamental way of thinking about these issues. The punishment for crime is important. Don't get me wrong on that. So making the penalty stiffer, creating new offenses, reviewing the sentencing framework, all of that is important, and we have done all of that and for law enforcement agencies to take these issues very seriously. But that's the relatively easier part. But when I said philosophical uh, approach, uh, what I meant is we also need a mindset change beyond looking at this as a crime and punishment issue. Such acts of voyeurism, similar conduct, they have to be viewed as an affront to what we stand for and against our most deeply held beliefs. The idea of equality between men and women, boys and girls, has to be hard-coded from young and imprinted deeply into our collective consciousness. So we decided we will do a thorough review, look at related issues, structural issues affecting women, affecting their ability to achieve their full potential. And as I said earlier, we have had hundreds of conversations. Uh, let me briefly touch on some of the issues that came up during the conversations. Now, there's many, many of them have been discussed in the morning too. So I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll just give you a sense. Uh, first, what came up repeatedly is workplace. The hurdles and issues that women face and the impact on their career, their progress. These are often linked back to their situation at home you know, maternity, going on maternity leave, coming back to the job, make, making sure that they are treated fairly when they come back. And women often take a larger share of the household work and also caregiving, whether it's a family, children, elderly parents, parents-in-law. So there's been a fair amount of feedback for more support to fulfill both career and family aspirations and basically just a fair and equal treatment at the workplace. And many agreed 
also with the need for mindset shifts across the whole of society. And uh, you know, if you look at those issues, other issues that came up, another illustration, women's representation on boards of public companies. If you look at the Council for Board Diversity target, it was 20% by 2020, 25% by 2025, 30% by 2030 for women's representation on boards of uh, SGX listed companies. So far, it's 17.6% representation in the top 100 listed companies in Singapore in 2020, from 7.5% in 2014. This is on the low side. It needs to be dealt with. Another area, important area, which came up repeatedly, enhancing protection and safety of women for hurt and sexual offenses. Uh, as I indicated earlier, we have further increased the penalties for those who commit sexual offenses, hurt offenses against vulnerable victims. They face enhanced penalties. And this would include victims in intimate or close relationships, even if they are not married with the offender, the girlfriends, live-in partners. We have also increased the penalties for harassment of persons in an intimate relationship with the offender and for repeated breaches of protection orders. And many of you would know there was a new protection uh, from harassment uh, court that was set up and you know it's now come into force. The act was passed in 2019. We have created also new offenses to specifically make criminal acts like voyeurism, dissemination of intimate images without consent. These have all become more prevalent with technology. And as I said in parliament, you know, when you come up in mitigation and you say, oh, well, you know, this boy has a very bright future, really serve your sentence first for the offense, then go and pursue the bright future that you have. The starting point has got to be no excuses. It should never have happened. And we have to teach that to our boys and girls from school, mutual respect, equality, autonomy. So a wide range of topics have been discussed in the conversations. As I said, I haven't listed everything, just a few issues to give you a sense. And today's conference is an important platform to continue the conversation. The panelists in the earlier sessions, participants have raised important points on caregiving and work and family trade-offs, the division of domestic labor, protection from sexual crimes. I hope people with views will make their views known. This, is, this has to be a whole of nation whole of society effort. We then intend to table a white paper that takes in the relevant ideas and table it in parliament. So I look forward to the discussion later. Thank you. Sorry, I should unmute first. Thank you very much indeed, Minister Shanmugam. Um, and already the questions are coming in, so I foresee a very lively discussion. Uh, but before that, I have the honour of introducing our second speaker, Ms. Herting Ru, who is Member of Parliament, Sengkang GRC, and Chair of Sengkang Town Council, as you've heard earlier. She's also the Deputy Organising Secretary of the Workers' Party. She advocates for better access to opportunities and sustainability of our systems, with a focus on gender and women's issues. She's trained and practised as a solicitor of England and Wales with Clifford Chance in London, and is head of legal and communications at a listed multinational corporation in Singapore. I present to you, Ms. Her. 
Good afternoon, Professor Kong, Minister Shamugan, and to all our participants. Thank you for having me here today. 2021 has been designated as a year to celebrate SG women. Who then are these SG women? They are the women who are well respected in the office, jumping on calls after their toddlers have gone to sleep, but are told by their bosses that they will withhold their pay increment because they are about to go off on maternity leave yet again. They are the women who grin and bear it while being told by well-meaning relatives who tell them that the good men don't wait, so make sure you don't put off marriage. They are the women who make hard choices to quit their jobs to look after loved ones, but find themselves struggling to find a way back into the labor force with a job that they are able to fit around their care responsibilities. They are the women who decide having children is not for them as they pursue other goals in life, but put up with sight glances and chatter about why they have made this decision. With such a wide variety of lived experiences of SG women, where do we then begin to start tackling the challenges faced by women in Singapore today while we chart a roadmap for our continued success and progress? This year's IPS Women's Conference focuses on gender equality in Singapore with an action plan for progress. Throughout the course of today, we have heard and will continue to have discussions about matters relating to how women function in various spheres and we all have ideas about how to deal with the challenges we face in the workplace, in the home, and in society at large. These are all important conversations to have, and we must continue to push for better progress and to empower women to cover our roles in Singapore and this world. Yet we need to go back to basics, as it strikes me that gender equality will continue to be elusive if we persist in thinking of women's issues and women's success and progress through the lens of traditional measures such as climbing the career ladder and earning power. As long as we continue to view work traditionally done by women, such as caring, running households and looking after their families as being inferior or merely ancillary to the real work of earning wages, true equality will be hard to obtain. Why do we say that women who have dedicated their lives to bringing up their children and caring for vulnerable family members are contributing less to our society and that a measure of a man's worth is his ability to win bread for the family. Indeed, how do we even begin to value or quantify such invaluable labor typically carried out by women? How many mothers here have been told that going on maternity leave is going on holiday and that Thai Thais have it good? I certainly have. And as a response, I'd like to offer them my rambunctious three and four-year-olds for a day and ask if they don't feel more exhausted by them after a full day in the office. Both men and women must be given the chance to take on either role or even a combination of these roles that suit their family's circumstances without feeling embarrassment or suffering a penalty. Mothers and fathers must feel equally able to take time off work, whether in the form of longer parental leave or even a few hours out of their workday, to attend to the call informing them that their child has a fever and needs to be picked up from school in the middle of the day. We must stop ourselves from viewing such caring roles and the unpaid work of ensuring the smooth running of our families and households as having lower value. Each of us in our roles as employers, family members, and part of our society has a role to play in ensuring that we start viewing unpaid labor as having equal value to that of paid work. Only then do we have the good and solid foundation on which to place our other building blocks of addressing gender inequality in the workplace, in our homes, and in our society. I'd like to briefly touch on two other areas too, noting that there are many other issues that do require our attention. First, 
how do we set up our labor force to cater to the different needs of women as we struggle to, to struggle to juggle many balls in the air? A shift in the way we look at this issue is required. Instead of viewing the issue as employers against female workers, I think it is to the benefit of both enterprises and employees whose jobs when jobs remain flexible and working conditions are supportive for the unique situations that female employees find themselves in. Women bring much value into the workplace. Recent research has in fact shown that women are perceived by their managers, particularly male managers, to be slightly more effective than men at every hierarchical level and in virtually every functional area of the organization, including traditional male bastions of IT operations and legal services. So even as we look to normalize flexible work arrangements on a structural and cultural level and legislate more shared parental leave along with a gender neutral family care leave, we must ensure that both men and women can make the choices that work for their families without stigma. This means breaking down breadwinning norms being the preserve for males and an ideal worker culture that means men are set up to achieve in the workplace. Removing the stigma of men taking responsibility for a greater burden of running households and care work means that women are less overstretched at home and will free them physically and mentally to concentrate on their jobs, which in turn would help to close the gender pay gap. Reducing the stark binary choice that many women face, family or, family or career, could also tackle our objectively low TFR levels when more women can balance raising children and excelling in a job. The second area which I would like to touch on is to move towards full equality by removing misogynistic attitudes and biases towards women. While we agree that there are vulnerable groups of women who do require better protection, the narrative needs to move from seeing women in general as victims or needing special help to one where we are able to equip women with the correct tools to stand up for ourselves and to have laws that enshrine our absolute right to be free from harassment and discrimination by virtue of our gender. One area where anti-discrimination legislation would be helpful is in the workplace. A recent study by SCCCI found that four in 10 women have encountered gender discrimination in the workplace, while only one in 10 men have experienced the same. In this day and age, I have still encountered flippant comments from colleagues that it's preferable to hire a male employee so they won't disappear for a few months, and that a promotion or pay increment should be withheld from an employee who's about to go on maternity leave. A standard question for female job applicants too is to ask us about our marital status, whether we intend to have children, or if, even whether we're in a romantic relationship. While it aims to tackle this problem, the current TAFAP system places unfair responsibility on women and indeed survivors of workplace harassment to seek accountability and protection. The onus is placed on victims to make a report to TAFAP when experiencing workplace harassment or discrimination. The Tripartite Advisory on Managing Workplace Harassment is another example of how the mindset and mentality is still that the individual is ultimately responsible for their own safety and well-being and advises individuals to take charge of their personal safety, health and well-being at the workplace or to consider telling the harasser to stop his or her unreasonable behaviour. While well-intentioned, this fails to recognise the reality of existing power dynamics or the concerns that making a report may cost one's job. These make it difficult for individuals to take steps to protect oneself or to seek accountability. A more effective solution may be to have anti-discrimination legislation to legally mandate all employers to ensure proper procedures are in place to protect their employees from workplace harassment and discrimination 
bearing in mind that employers do have a duty of care to their employees to ensure safety and well-being in the workplace. Another area of concern recently has been that of sexual assault. And while strong deterrents and punishments are important, we should address the root of the problem by standing up against the objectification of women generally. We can all do our part by calling out misogynistic comments made against women, particularly if such comments touch on the appearance of women, and to make it clear that women must be respected. We need to, as a society, decide that such locker room banter is in fact harmful and degrades women and perpetuates the idea that we need not be respectful of women. Individual effort is good and important, but it is not enough. Equality has to start with education in schools, but also in the wider public. People must understand that objectification and discrimination are fundamentally wrong, not just that they may get punished. We need to be empowered to call out discriminatory behavior and be able to address structural power imbalances. Well-meaning men speaking up as champions of women is not enough. While men should be part of the conversation for sure, we need to aim for a society that respects women for who we are and to take strides towards a society that gives us a voice to shape where we want to go from here. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Ms. Her. And um, both your remarks have clearly generated quite a lot of thoughts in our participants' heads uh, because quite a number of questions have already come in and um, attracted a number of votes. So if I might um, begin, um, I would organize the questions that have come in in the following ways. There are a set of questions about legislation. There are a set of questions about policies that might be introduced. And I will begin with legislation and direct these questions perhaps to Minister. Um, there are questions around you know, online behaviors and whether or not the um, sort of, uh, uh, whether or not the law should actually do more in terms of mandating ID verification on forums like Hardware Zone, uh, just because the anonymous sexist content still runs rampant and unchecked. And uh, if I might link that to um, another question, uh, it's similar. Uh, somebody else has asked about online pornography and whether or not we should be uh, taking a harder stand on it from a legal perspective. Um, may I invite Minister to um, share your thoughts? Um, thank you, uh, Prof Kong. In terms of the law, it's uh, quite strict and uh, the you know, action is taken when action is possible to be taken. You see this, I agree with you that this is a serious issue and uh, you know, you've recently come across female asatizas being asked to rank, asked to be ranked by men uh, on their looks, horrible things. Uh, a year or two years ago, we have had photographs of uh, secondary school girls being uh, circulated. I mean, every other day something is happening. The issue is traceability and the issue is, you know, how do you stop it? We have a list of sites we prohibit, pornographic content, we block it, but they mushroom and spout uh, much faster than they can be blocked and people can anyway go to international sites for this. I think the platforms have a significant role and responsibility 
to take steps. And I think government has got to work with them and do more. What the precise form ought to be, whether we should ask people to put out their identity, I think it's uh, not easy to say, but I think a lot more can be done to stop such behavior. It's, it is, I agree, it's a problem. I agree, it's rampant. Um, you know, many of us have sisters, daughters, and uh, what's going on is unacceptable. Uh, governments around the world are grappling with this. We have, uh, whenever we find them, for example, the men who were circulating the photographs of the secondary school girls, they face severe penalties. So when we can find them, we do proceed. But there is a lot more that can be done. And I think the platforms need to step up too. Thank you, Minister. Still on the subject of legislation, I might turn to Ms. Her to secure your thoughts on a different set of legislation that um, our participants are asking about. Um, they're saying, you know, perhaps we actually need some anti-discrimination laws in place and um, some laws around perhaps same pay for the same job, equal pay for the same job. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are about anti-discrimination laws. I think, I, as I said earlier, um, you know, I think there is room for anti-discrimination laws, especially in the workplace. Um, because, you know, as women, we, we do get, um, we do actually get quite a lot of uh, uh, comments and, you know, experiences made to a, a you know, director at us, um, where, you know, especially when it comes to maternity, this is a, a area where I think, um, you know, maybe this, there needs to be some more protection or maybe not protection, but, you know, there needs to be more structures put in place to make sure that we cannot, um, that, that, that employers cannot keep um, discriminating against women because, you know, I mean, personally and, you know, uh, with a lot of people I know, uh, we've actually been uh, experienced this when, when we actually go into maternity leave. Um, the employers do actually say, you know, uh, you are leaving for a few months. Um, you know, I can't justify a, a pay raise. I can't justify a promotion. Um, so that's one area which I feel that um, a lot of mums uh, do feel quite strongly about. And um, having an anti-discrimination legislation uh, to actually mandate that employees have a structure, employers have a structure in place to protect women. I think that's something that uh, is long overdue and we should seriously look into that. Thank you. Um, Minister, if I could extend that question, I recall reading um, in you know, public documents about um, your um, views on this matter that um, you know, it's probably not as straightforward as um, putting in place certain anti-discrimination laws because we could end up hurting the people, the very people we're trying to help. Would you um, mind elaborating on that? Uh, starting point, Prof, is that uh, we shouldn't rule out legislation, right? Uh, but we should also uh, understand that looking at the experience of other countries, that legislation alone is not going to solve the problem. Because you put in legislation, uh, say to protect a group of people, we've seen examples of uh, then of the group that you're trying to protect, let's say women, not being promoted, but a variety of other reasons are given. And then you've got to try and go to court and try and prove that indeed uh, you were discriminated against. And it often becomes uh, 
not an easy exercise in the, in the end because you know it's an employer employee uh, workplace situation they cite a variety of other reasons it becomes very difficult so that alone is not a solution but i don't think one should rule out such legislation i think it requires a whole of society mindset change and with enough women in uh, senior positions so that you may not even need to get to that stage where everyone understands men and women that look uh, having children is important encouraging women to go on maternity leave is important you don't need legislation i mean you need legislation to sort of form a framework but you need people to accept it you need people to understand it and uh, you need men women in senior positions across the board to say this is important for society this is important for our country this is important for our company and we we, we all share these values i think we need to do that too um so thank you minister um and i i agree with you that you know at the end of the day um if we are achieving certain outcomes because of legislation then we haven't got our value systems uh in place where we want them to be um and so i'd like to follow up with a question that has come from the audience about um how do we actually go about achieving cultural mindset changes that are needed in society um you know we we i think we agree and recognize that cultural changes mindset changes are necessary um but talking about it alone does not achieve that how do we actually go about um you know sort of encouraging that and i'll address this question to both minister as well as miss her in that order ah you want me to go first okay the uh, that is something that i mentioned in my speech last year in september when we kicked this off and i sort of alluded to it a bit earlier too as i said earlier putting in legislation for example on uh, sexual offenses uh, making voyeurism a specific offense it was always an offense but we uh, sort of uh, charged people under other uh, rubric but now we have a specific offense of voyeurism and increasing penalties that's a easier part it can be done but i said we need to move away from this oh you did a committed a crime we are going to punish you that's important but we need to not look at that as the silver bullet by itself what is the underlying change what's the philosophical approach that's necessary for boys and girls to grow up respecting each other <coughs> accepting each other as equals <coughs> excuse me saying that you know i need to treat this person as a person and not objectify that means a lot more needs to be done at homes a lot more needs to be done in schools moe as uh, looking at a very comprehensive program it does have programs it's looking at a very comprehensive program in schools it you know it came up in the conversations it's a part of i hope it will form part of the white paper when it's published uh, mindset change it's not going to happen overnight but uh, it is something we need to start very early on and we need to keep talking about it and making sure that people understand what this is and we need to bring it across to society it's not going to be done overnight but education and education not just in schools indeed um a, a lot of public education i think is is necessary and much needed uh, perhaps i could turn to miss her for your thoughts on this topic 
I just would like to um, say that, you know, uh, uh, anti-discrimination legislation really is the framework um, and it's really just a signal to the rest of society where, um, you know, you do actually want people to know, and I'm sure Minister will agree with me on this, um, that, you know, the legislation is there to say that these are the values that we have as a society. Uh, you know, we don't stand for objectification of women. We don't stand for all these, you know, crass and horrible comments are uh, being made, uh, whether about women's appearance, about, you know, their ability to do their job, so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, again, I do kind of want to come back to the topic of education. I think it's uh, really important in our schools as well, uh, particularly the education of boys. Uh, I have three boys. So, um, you know, this is something that's quite close to my heart. Um, you know, I think, uh, for example, I think in the UK, um, there are certain charities that do really focus on the education of, um, to, to try and tackle the problem of toxic masculinity uh, among school boys. I think about from ages about nine up, up to 14 or 15. Um, and I think these are, this is actually something that we can look at, um, you know, a very targeted approach um, where, you know, we do actually go into our schools and, you know, just, just speak to our boys and, you know, try and undo some of those uh, maybe more toxic mindsets that, um, that they, they might be de developing at that age. So I think that's uh, really tackling that from a, from a very young age. Um, but, you know, looking at um, a wider education in the, in the public domain, I think, you know, it's great that uh, we in Singapore now are approaching this um, magic number of 30% of female legislators. Uh, I think this is also quite an important signal to um, women and young girls out there that, um, you know, we, we, you know, women are becoming, standing up and becoming leaders and taking uh, greater roles in public office and in public positions. And that, you know, we should be respected for, you know, who we are rather than, you know, as people who need to be, you know, protected or molikado. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, there are quite a number of questions that have come in on um, pol policy areas, right? Moving, moving from legislation, uh, use of policy. And I'll just begin with one that is uh, quite interesting to a number of participants. And I'll read the question as follows. How can government policy help to address the problem of unpaid and invisible caregiving work that is largely undertaken by women? Um, uh Prof, I assume you're addressing that to me. Please, okay. Yes. Now, let me put in a caveat at first. Uh, you know, as a minister, there's cabinet collective responsibility. So I can't say we are going to do this, that, and the other until cabinet actually approves something, or discusses and approves. But I can say that one, in terms of uh, caregiving, the starting point is we shouldn't say it's only women who do caregiving. That's the first point. Second point, we all know a lot of the caregiving is done by women, but I don't think we should go to a person and say, well, you know, uh, would you like to choose caregiving? It must be a matter of choice for themselves. But where they do it, you know that today, some uh, assistance is being given. And uh, I think uh, my colleague, Shun uh, Leng mentioned the different factors in caregiving. It, the individual is giving care. What is the network system? What's a caregiving network system? There needs to be a support system that as a, as a government, as a uh, society, we should try and put in with volunteers, with others, with agencies to come in so that the entire caregiving doesn't fall on one person alone. 
and how do you fit it within a framework of uh, say caregiving uh, fitted in with the uh, the medical system the hospital system second uh, how do you take care of the mental and physical well being of the caregiver third uh, to what extent can you uh, recognize the contributions you don't want to cheap on it by linking it to money but how do you recognize in some financial way the sacrifices that such a caregiver is uh, making so these are all questions that are being actively looked at and considered and i hope that they will be able to be addressed in the white paper and subsequent discussions thank you thank you um, i'd like to um, ask ms her uh, uh, an extension of that question earlier today uh, one of the speakers ms kerry tang talked about invisible caregiving work and suggested an idea of care fair um you know that um parallels workfare um i don't think she had much time to elaborate on that but perhaps um you know if i directed that question to you and asked your thoughts about the possibilities of actually um monetizing care work in that sense um we've just heard minister say that perhaps we shouldn't be cheapening that care work by associating money with it but what do you think about this concept that was raised today I think you know it's it's obviously a you know an interesting idea that I think um, it's everyone's looking forward to the further development of this uh, idea of care fair and how it could actually work towards helping our caregivers. Um, but I think one interesting thing that has come out of the pandemic really is um, you know the important the, the really really important role of um, workers who are actually employed in uh, typically low wage low status jobs of providing care. For the vulnerable uh, elements of our society, uh, such as you know nurses, uh, preschool teachers, preschool assistants, um, you know I think it hasn't uh, hasn't escaped anyone's notice that you know they are the ones who are really essential when we come to the pandemic. And I think you know most parents uh, now really do appreciate the work that these these uh, preschool teachers and teachers do. Um, but you know typically these roles are quite um, they're quite poorly paid uh, and they have quite a low status. So I think you know. Possibly, one thing to look at is you know how we can actually really get people to recognize the work that they do, and that that in itself sends an important message that this is important work, and that would actually flow on to uh, the more unpaid and informal carers that we have in society. Um, so I think that that's one way in which we can do it, um, and also I think we do need to look at the retirement adequacy of these uh, of these unpaid care, care, carers. Um, you know, for example, I'm sure all of us, uh, you know, legislators, MPs, we do have uh, residents who do literally drop out of the workforce to take care of, you know, um, someone, you know, a family member with special needs, or they drop out of the workforce to look after their 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 sister's children or their brother's children, you know, um, especially if these children have special needs. Um, you know, they a lot of these women do come to us at the end of, um, you know, when they come to about 55, 60, they do come to us and say, you know, look, um, I don't really have much for myself and I need some help um, earning or just, just making ends meet. So um, I think we, we really need to look into that um, and how we can actually support them. And I do agree that, you know, uh, it's not always um, right to ascribe a monetary value to it, but, um, you know, practically speaking, these people do need, uh, do need to actually have a more sustainable ways of actually funding their retirement. Thank you. Um, I'm going to toggle back to Minister because there's a question that's directed to you. 
and it extends on this theme of caregiving. Um, and the question is, can we consider the time bank concept that was successful in Switzerland for elder care? Um, I wonder what your thoughts about that might be. I think this is a very important issue. As I said just now, when I said, you know, while we don't want to cheap on it, I do think some sort of financial recognition, uh, a reasonable financial recognition for the value of the caregiving work would be a good signal, would be an important step, more than a signal. And uh, the Swiss model is interesting. As I said, here I'm, you know, whatever I say, I'm also speaking as a policymaker. So I need to be careful. So, Prof, what I would say to you is we need to take caregiving seriously. We have, I think we need to look at it again. The, uh, and I know that uh, the Ministry of Health, as well as the uh, MSF, are looking at these issues. And I know that uh, you know, this has formed a significant part of the conversations. And we need to find a way of, uh, of doing this properly for our society. I mean, I can say that much. I, I, I accept it's a very important issue and uh, it needs to be uh, dealt with. Thank you. Um, fully understand that these are important and weighty issues that need to be discussed carefully before pronouncement as such. Um, so the audience will forgive me that I will not um, press on with these questions of caregiving. Uh, there are various shades of questions around this theme. I think the audience can take it that uh, these are being given very active consideration. Thank you. Delighted to hear that. Um, perhaps if I could move to another area of policy that uh, seems to also be very interesting uh, and important to the audience, it has to do with parental leave. Um, and there is a set of questions around, you know, um, perhaps we should have equal parental leave for fathers as, as much as for mothers. Uh, again, citing the example in Europe, particularly in Scandinavia, is there room for us to be bold on this front as an accelerator of change? Um, and I might turn to Ms. Her for your thoughts first on this issue. I think this is definitely something which uh, we really need to really look into. Um, I think there was a Swedish study recently that showed that uh, men who take more uh, parental leave when the babies are born tend to be well, really tend to be more involved in uh, caring for children as they grow up and they're more involved in families. So um, this again dovetails with our earlier conversation or you know the earlier conversations today about how how can we get a better equalization between men and women in terms of child child caring, uh, household responsibilities. So I think um, you know I think uh, it's really important that we look into really coming up with a shared parental leave scheme where you know maybe we get up to 24 weeks of uh, shared parental leave between men and women, the father and the mother of the child. And then each family can then decide what suits them best and how to actually distribute and calibrate that between them. Because, you know, every family is different. Uh, you know, there are some fathers who actually desperately want to get more involved in bringing up their children. They want to get more involved when the baby is born. Uh, you know, I think when the baby is born in the beginning, um, so much attention is around baby and, mom, and the mum uh, that fathers sometimes do feel a bit left out, especially like, you know, they're seen as a very female and women's, uh, women's world. And I think a lot of fathers do feel a bit left out and they are, you know, they really want to get more involved 
in um, you know just bonding with the child because the mother has carried the child for nine months. She's already had that bond, whereas fathers are starting from a maybe slightly um, uh, more um, uh, sort of a, a stage where you know they they need to play catch up a bit more. So I think giving them the flexibility to choose and to decide, I think that would be very helpful. Thank you. Um, so there are quite a number of other questions. So I'm not going to um, sort of insist that the same question is addressed by both speakers um, all the time. Uh, I might move on to something else, which um, is an interesting question to my mind, uh, because it's not the usual policy question about parental leave or you know time bank and so forth. Um, this is a question about what are the conditions that might actually um, create or exacerbate gender inequality? And the question is this, are single-sex schools and other single-sex institutions an obstacle to gender equality? Um, and I turn to Minister and then Ms. Her in that order. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, I think it's best addressed to someone from Ministry of Education, but uh, when my children were growing up, uh, what I was told is that girls do better in girls' schools because when there are boys around, they tend to be a little bit more reticent. And uh, I don't know, but I know I was shown some research studies and that it's best for girls to have that freedom in their single sex schools to grow up rather than having boys sort of affect them. That's the way it was put to me and I had no reason to disbelieve it. Uh, so I, I would leave it to the experts. I think whatever is best. Thank you. Um, Ms. Hurt, be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I think, you know, one of the, from my understanding, again, one of the um, reasons, uh, you know, we do have single sex schools is that boys and girls learn quite differently. Um, so, you know, I think uh, from what, at least from what I've observed, you know, my sons, they're quite, um, they're quite physical learners where, and, you know, they, they just can't sit still. Whereas, um, I know it's a bit of a stereotype, but, you know, girls, um, they don't require that much physical activity. So I think there are benefits um, to having, you know, single sex schools. However, uh, I don't think this should be a barrier to, and I don't think this, this should be the reason why, uh, you know, that, that we, we end up with this um, inequality between the sexes. And uh, we can easily address this by, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we do actually bring in um, uh, programs and, you know, education uh, for boys and girls about, you know, what is, uh, what is right, what is respectful, you know, um, between the sexes, uh, you know, how, 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 how can a respectful relationship, uh, relationship actually evolve? And I know now it's COVID times and, uh, you know, we don't really have inter-school activities, um, but I, I do actually feel that there's quite a lot of um, that, that can be learned, uh, that can be benefit, uh, students can benefit quite a lot uh, from inter-school activities, um, especially between uh, what is what, what's traditionally seen as, you know, uh, desirable schools and uh, maybe with um, more uh, in neighbourhood schools. I think there should be more activities between them um, to, and that will have the, be and the benefit of um, just exposing these students and uh, to maybe lived experiences that are a bit different to their own. And that would actually also have a happy, you know, side effect of uh, helping expose them to uh, different, different types of uh, students based on, uh, as opposed to just the classmates that they, that they have. Thank you. Um, so, you know, um, that particular question was trying to get at uh, a sense of 
um, possible root causes of why there might be gender inequality. Um, another question um, that is directed at, you know, sort of um, creating environments which are more gender blind, not even gender neutral, but gender blind, um, it reads as follows. Do you think that it would be valuable for, uh, for us to take traits such as marital status, race, gender, off of job applications? Um, so in other words, you, you know, sort of assess on the basis of the experience and um, what the individual is able to bring to it without knowing whether he or she is male, female, Chinese, Indian, etc. Miss um, Her, what are your thoughts around that? I think it's quite interesting. Uh, I think I read a study the other day which showed that um, for um, musical auditions, when they actually have the screen between um, the 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 you know the the interviewers and the and the people actually playing the instruments uh, they find that um, when they have the screen up and they don't actually know whether it's a man or a woman behind the screen uh, they find that actually women and I mean the, the successful rates for men and women are more equal but you know when the screen comes down or let's say the the, the, the musician behind the screen uh, coughs or makes some indication that it's a man or a woman they actually find that I think it's something really high like 80 or 90 percent success rate goes to men compared with 10 20 percent for women so that's that sort of drastic um uh, really really drastic um, you know difference between that um i suspect there's a little bit of that that feeds into other areas of you know when you're looking for uh, job applicants uh practically whether that's possible or not i mean ultimately if you have an interview uh, as, as part of a job, you will find out whether it's a woman or, you know, a man or whether it's, uh, you know, what, what race the person is. But, you know, I, I, I think one way we can actually get through the first hurdle is to, you know, take away all that information from the CV. And I think uh, countries like the UK, they do actually have a diversity um, survey right at the end of every job application, I believe. But this is actually uh, removed from the actual um, application itself and it's uh, hidden from the, the first step of the screening. So I think this is something that we can actually really benefit from as opposed to, you know, where we receive CV. Sometimes we got, you know, a picture of the person, the applicant and at the top of the CV. Um, I think that's probably not very helpful, uh, especially getting through that first hurdle of getting someone to interview. Right. Um, thank you for that. But as you say, that is really just the first hurdle because um, the multiple hurdles that could follow uh, are perhaps even more difficult. Um, and so perhaps what's really quite important is coming back to mindset changes, cultural changes, uh, which can come through things like unconscious bias training and so forth. Um, so, you know, um, the question about sort of not having these indicators or these um, uh, uh, manifest in an application um, could go some way, but would not actually solve the, the issue as such. No, I, I don't think, I mean, it's definitely not a silver bullet, but, you know, by doing it as a first step, again, we're sending that signal we talked about earlier when we talk about legislation, uh, that, you know, we really need to be start looking at um, each applicant based on their merits, at least in the first, you know, and then we can control that at least in the first stage of things. Certainly. Um, so, so, you know, um, since we're talking about the workplace, um, might as well go to the boardroom. Um, and there are a couple of questions with some upvoting on um, quotas. Um, and it's not a new issue. And, you know, many people have talked about this before. 
um, with its pros and cons. But uh, let, let's hear it from, from both of you, what your thoughts about quotas might be for the boardroom. Um, Ms. Her, you're lighted up, so I'll let you go first. Okay, on I think, how yeah. we can improve the numbers on the boardroom, boardroom yeah. representation? Um, yes, by having a quota system. Yeah. Uh, you see, I, I'm not a fan of quotas. I think, uh, and people who get in on the basis of quotas are not going to feel that, you know, they've been there entirely on merit. The reality is our women are high achievers. And uh, they, are, they have done extremely well. If you look at some of the professions, law, medicine, accounting, banking, they do extremely well. In fact, I tell many people when I used to do interviews in my law firm, I had to do positive discrimination in favor of the boys because the women come in, they're much better prepared. They interview much better than the boys do. But uh, we need... We need to push uh, the uh, companies to do better in terms of uh, getting the women onto the boards. And the women need mentoring as well. And Council for Board Diversity does a great job on this. I've met them. In fact, I think now almost 10 years ago, nine years ago, I met them. And I uh, spoke about this as well. MAS has a view on this. Uh, and MAS and Council for Board have been discussing. Um, and the I think some sort of framework that uh, looks at it and as a, a transparently says which companies are doing well and which companies aren't doing so well would help to push this along rather than I think hard quotas. Uh, so CBD, for example, mentors women and prepares them so when a company says, I need a person on the board, we need some women. There are women who have the relevant experience, expertise, who have been mentored and who are ready to be appointed. So they keep such a list. We SGX talks to the companies. I think we can do a bit more. And that's one of those things that is being uh, looked at as part of this uh, white paper and discussions. When it may be able to come out with, and there is a, because you're dealing with listed companies, there is a fairly lengthy process of uh, discussions that are going on within MAS on how we should structure it. But I think uh, people who have studied it come back and say hard quotas may not be the best approach. But you may need something stronger than just uh, moral suasion. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Hurl, would, would you like to share your thoughts on this? I mean, I'm also in, in agree that, you know, I, I don't think that quotas are the answer, um, you know, especially not just for women, but other forms of diversity as well in terms of race, you know, otherwise you do end up in uh, in, a da in danger of really going down the path of tokenism or, you know, just having these quotas filled for the sake of, uh, for, of, of, you know, just having these quotas filled. Um, but, you know, I think uh, the minister did uh, mention earlier about, um, you know, mentorships and, you know, having women role models and women ex examples of, you know, women uh, then sort of, you know, uh, talking to uh, more junior women, mentoring them, uh, you know, do, uh, you know, just, just trying to share with them their experiences and how, how they've overcome some of the difficulties, because I think there are a lot of um, shared experiences between women. 
um, you know, I think we're, we're, we're moving in the correct direction. Uh, we're still obviously still nowhere near we need to be. And um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, quotas are definitely not something that, um, you know, that I feel is very helpful. And, uh, you know, we really do just need have to look at, you know, uh, individuals based on talent, based on who they are, not on the color of their skin, not on, uh, you know, their gender. Um, and, you know, I think it's also really important for us, uh, you know, because obviously I'm here in my capacity as a uh, representative of a political party. I think it's also really important that, you know, the Workers' Party, for example, you know, we, we, we do genuinely just place people where we feel, um, uh, you know, their strengths are and where they actually uh, suit, you know, where, where they actually suit, uh, where they actually suited. So, you know, we have, uh, you know, an Indian uh, SG, we have a female chair, uh, you know, we, the alternate team actually was uh, three uh, minorities out of five, um, you know, so I think, you know, when, when organizations and our leaders and business and politics, we start actually uh, walking the talk that way, that will actually really drive, you know, businesses and listed companies towards uh, having a more diverse uh, system, uh, more diverse representation on their boards in, in terms of their senior management. Um, and then I think everyone really benefits because the more diverse you are, the more um, experiences you actually bring to the table. And I think this will only strengthen the country, society and businesses. Thank you. Uh, indeed, modeling the way is, is very important. Um, I have a set of questions um, around the more marginal or marginalized women. Um, there is a set of questions. There's a question around how we can support single mothers better. And there is a set of questions about our female um, uh, domestic workers, our foreign domestic workers, uh, who really sort of sacrifice their own lives and their own children and invest emotionally in ours. And what can we do more for both these groups of marginal women in society? Um, perhaps I could um, start with Ms. Her. I think, you know, having had, you know, a fantastic support network, um, um, you know, just, you know, family and also external support network and also the support of my former boss, all I can say is I really don't know how single moms do it. It's, you know, having kids and raising them and, you know, wanting to do your best for them, uh, constantly having this thought of what, what's my kid doing at the back of my head and all that, you know, that, that sort of uh, mum guilt, as they call it. Um, you know, I can just imagine it's so much worse for them. Uh, so I really do feel that we need to stop penalizing them, uh, especially when the, the penalties are actually ultimately, uh, you know, felt by the children, because these children, you know, our children don't choose which families they're, they're, they're born in. So I think, you know, we really need to start looking into uh, policies and, you know, laws that actually penalize um, such, uh, such the children and, uh, you know, such single moms as well. Um, and in terms of uh, foreign domestic workers, you know, uh, obviously I, I admit that, you know, I do benefit from, from, from having one at home. Um, I do think that um, we as a society cannot um, always rely on the fact that there will be these women who are willing to come to our houses and do quite what is ultimately a very difficult job, uh, giving up their children. And, 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 you know, I don't think that that's actually a sustainable labour solution. So we really must start looking at uh, the broader picture of how we can better support uh, households of mums, of care, of, you know, just uh, carers in general, so that, you know, um, women, as I said earlier, you know, women then, or women and men really, um, then can find it easier to balance uh, going out there, making money to make ends meet, 
and also um, their responsibilities in the household. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Minister, would like to invite your thoughts. Thank you. On single women, I agree with you, Prof, on the, the sentiments. I mean, if you look at single women, children, we want to make sure that they are taken care of uh, and help the single woman take care of the children. So for those who need it, you know, there's a social support program to take care of them. Then, of course, a very uh, comprehensive education program that comes in a number of ways. One, uh, through the social support program, but also through the schools, where it's not just single women, but anyone with a lower income, where the children are struggling or they have difficulties. Today, MOE does a lot to focus resources on these children because they are our resource, Singapore's only resource. We've got to make sure that they achieve their full potential. It's the right thing to do, and it is the smart thing to do as well. So we need to focus on them and we need to support, as I said, the social support network for the uh, single woman uh, or single parent families. It's not just restricted to single women. The program that uh, MSF has, social support program, is for any single parents. When it comes to uh, foreign domestic workers, I think it's extremely important. We saw some of these really uh, unacceptable, horrible, heartbreaking cases where foreign domestic workers have been treated like slaves and have been uh, brutalized and uh, you know it, people have been charged for murder, I think we ought to try and see what we can do to prevent it. We have a lot of uh, framework. Doctors have to see them. Uh, they are uh, told what their rights are when they come into Singapore. They are spoken with, but still you get some cases. And... Uh, we have to try and see how we can better protect them. And I think the income they earn is something, you know, they make a choice. They say, okay, I can earn so much in the country that I'm in. If I go to Singapore, this is what I get. So they understand that. They make an economic choice. We got to make sure that their uh, personal liberty and freedom and uh, uh, safety is taken care of. Uh, Prof, I had a, a, an, a thought earlier on parental leave. I won't mention it now. If there is time later on, I will mention it. Thank you for flagging that. I'll come back to it. Um, Ms. Her, your thoughts, any thoughts to add on this at this point? No, I think, you know, uh, the minister covered uh, quite a lot of, uh, you know, and, and I think we are in alignment with some of the points. Uh, and, you know, I, I mentioned earlier as well, you know, this, this is a, uh, uh, something that we, we need to work further on and really um, make sure that we protect both these vulnerable uh, single moms and also um, the FDWs. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this next question is not a new one, um, but it would be interesting to hear your thoughts. Could we look forward to the word gender being added to the national pledge? <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> It's a policy matter, and it's a matter that I would leave to cabinet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there is um, th this question. Surely, I, I must invite the minister to respond to first, and then Ms. Her. It says, "How do we get men on board to jointly advocate for women equality? Since it's 
been identified as a societal issue and not just a women's issue. So I'll ask the man who's leading the charge. Uh, sorry, Prof, your question didn't come through clearly. Can I ask, trouble you to repeat it again? Yeah, no problem. Uh, how do we get men on board to jointly advocate for women equality since it's a societal issue, not a women's issue? It's not a women's issue. It is a societal issue and every man has a, a serious role. How do you get them to come on? Is If you have ideas, please tell us. Because uh, in the conversation that we've been having, we have uh, tried to get uh, men on board. It's been encouraging, but I'll be frank. 75% were women, 25% were men. And uh, we need to change that balance to 50-50. We need to get more men into it. Uh, what I can say is at uh, the senior civil service levels, at the uh, cabinet level, the men and women are all at item that this is an important issue. And what I believe is that in the, based on my conversations, based on the conversations that, uh, that uh, my fellow uh, colleagues have been having with in these conversations on women's development, a lot of men believe that. So is it half full or half empty? I think we can do more. But the good news is that a lot of men do believe it. And it's important. Indeed, indeed. Um, Ms. Her? Um, I thought that was actually quite interesting that, uh, you know, the male respondents uh, were 25% and women were 75%. Uh, probably worth looking into why that's the case, uh, whether it's because, you know, men feel that it's not important or it's not their not their role and not their place to speak out. We can't force people to attend. No, no, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, uh, of course, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, just wondering out loud why, why that's the case. You know, is it because of a lack of interest or they feel that, you know, they feel awkward about it? Again, I, I really, you know, I think that's worth uh, taking a look at. Um, you know, I think it's, of course, it's important to have men play their part in this conversation because, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we keep going back to the same theme about, you know, they are, they are, yeah, the way they actually support women, especially women who do want to climb the corporate ladder, who um, but you know want to have children as well. Um, so you know, uh, having men take part in the conversation is important. Um, you know, having male voices in the conversation is something to be encouraged, and it's great that you know we do have men who are interested enough and who actually feel strongly enough about this, who are taking part in it. Um, however, I think you know uh, we just need to be conscious of the fact that we don't end up in a situation where, you know, the male voices or the male, um, you know, the traditionally male uh, way of looking at things doesn't end up drowning out the voices of women out there. So I think it's just a balance that we have to be mindful of as we carry on the conversation. And I really hope that, you know, after the white paper is out, after this year is over, we still continue the conversation because I don't think the job will just end there. Yes. Um... Thank you for that. Um, so there are some questions that come back to the workplace. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go back to the office. Um, it says, how do we deal with employers who tell young women executives they are too young for a senior role, even when they have been performing that very senior role in all but name very satisfactorily? Um, Ms. Her, would you like to take that? Honestly, I think um, age, gender, all of this, um, hopefully one day we will start, uh, you know, just looking at, uh, as I said earlier, looking at uh, people from, from the, uh, based on the value that they actually bring to the table. 
Um, I know that, um, I mean, again, talking about personal experience, comments do, uh, people do make comments, uh, you know, how do you get to that position at your age or, you know, how do you get to that stage? And so, so that's, that suggests to me there's still much work that needs to be done that if we equate, uh, you know, women or, you know, youth um, with, you know, being inferior in some way. Um, but I think as we do uh, have more, again, coming back to the same point about having more role models, having more positive examples, that's, that's really going to go a really long way in normalizing things. And I think we are getting there. It's just that we need more. We just need more of it. Thank you. Um, so, so there's a question about um, media and its role in reinforcing gender stereotypes um, and what we can do to change media depictions of women, uh, but I would add of men too. Um, perhaps I could direct this question to Minister. I would say this, uh, Prof and uh, Ms. He, the, if you look at uh, the Singapore workforce anyway, uh, in uh, say journalism in various other places, you actually get a large number of women uh, in, the, in those sectors. They understand. These are all highly educated people, men and women, journalists, highly educated. They reported, we have to, I mean, one part of it is the mindset change that uh, we spoke about earlier across. But I don't believe that these women who write articles have, uh, you know, need any mindset change. I think they understand the women's role. They understand that they, and they realize that they are as good, if not better, and that, you know, ability should be assessed, not on the basis of gender, but what you produce. And my own sense is that in significant parts of our society, including the media, that is understood. That's why when I started out, what I said, I said, I think I would say that glass is two-thirds full, but it's not fully full. You know, there's more to go. Does that mean that we don't get objectification? You know, you hear the phrase, uh, if, you, if you project women in a certain way and you project men in a certain way, more copies of a, a newspaper or a magazine get sold. I mean, these things happen. And uh, it's going to be a whole of society effort to say, look, uh, the government can put out a framework as what is pornography, what is not. But well short of that line, there are issues of standards and proper way of uh, having a media discourse. And we should make sure that that comes through clearly. But I would say by and large, our media, uh, I don't think uh, it, it has crosses many lines compared with the uh, same media elsewhere. Thank you. Um, Ms. Her, your thoughts about media? I think, you know, um, I do agree with the minister that, you know, um, our media is you know, nowhere near the, the levels that you see in some countries where, you know, it's really bordering on, on the unacceptable. Um, however, you know, one thing that I find quite interesting as um, for example, during uh, the 2015 uh, campaign, during the election, I'm just talking based on personal experience here of, uh, you know, of the media. Um, what I found actually really quite interesting then was that because I was a single young female candidate, 
um, I did end up with a lot of uh, questions being thrown at me by journalists about, you know, my marital status, whether or not I was dating anybody, when was I going to have children, um, you know, because, you know, they, 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 they looked at me and they saw this, uh, you know, young female person and, you know, the, the immediate thought there was, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know when, when am I going to go off and start a family? Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Terence, who was on the same team, uh, was also unmarried at the time, but, you know, he was getting questions about uh, where do you see Singapore's economy going? Uh, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's a bit more subtle in, um, in, 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 in that. Um, and then these are actually, a lot of them were actually female journalists. So I think um, we need to be mindful that, uh, you know, as women, sometimes we can be very harsh on women as well. So we need to be mindful of our own, uh, you know, our own, our own attitudes, and just to think that, and not not to assume that just because uh, there are a lot of female journalists there, that therefore there's not a problem. We should move on. Um, so I think you know we, we we just need to be more mindful of the fact that you know sometimes women can be another woman's harshest critic, and as long as we are aware of that, I think it's you know it's it's quite helpful. Thank you, thank you. Um, let's see now. This is quite an open question, uh, but an interesting one. There are many gender issues for state and society to address. In your opinions, what is the easiest to change and what is the hardest? Um, perhaps I could begin with Minister. Okay. I mentioned some. I think um, the issues relating to sexual assaults, voyeurism, how do we treat that in the courts? What sort of laws do we need to put in place? How do we enhance the penalties? Those, as I said, are fairly straightforward. And uh, I want to touch on the issues that have been central to the conversations because rather than listing, uh, you know, these are easy and these aren't easy, I will take it uh, with what has been important for the women and the men who spoke up on these issues. Uh, workplace. We, we've dealt quite a bit on workplace, but essentially what are women asking for? They're asking for fairness. So when they go away on maternity and they come back, they, do they get back their job in the same way? Are their clients still there? What happens? Has somebody else uh, grown into that role and you know, is not quite willing to give it back? How does the uh, environment, how, they, how do the employees treat it? You know, employees run a business. How do we, and not all of this can be done by law. How do we try and create a change in society where we have a legal framework and at the same time, there is also a cultural mindset. So the two come together to try and give women what we basically say is a fair treatment, right? That, that's one area. Uh, harassment in the workplace. Again, uh, a little bit easier to uh, deal with. Uh, we, you know, have, uh, if you have a strict set of laws on what harassment amounts to, plus a, making sure that there is an ability to get uh, recourse if there is harassment quite easily. And, you know, now the law has uh, provided a very substantial amount of recourse and has made it easier with specific specialized courts as well. And I do take into account what uh, Ms. Her said that, you know, a lot of it falls on the uh, individual who has been harmed or feels that uh, she or 
he, he usually or she has been harmed. Is there a mindset, cultural change, organizational change? We need to encourage companies to put in place systems. For example, uh, I know ministries, including you know my own ministry. By nature, if you take the police force or civil defense, it's a very male-centered organization, and there are some women. And it's very important that we handle uh, any kind of harassment uh, sensitively and properly and effectively. So there's got to be uh, avenues for, and I checked this myself. I've asked for a report. I was given a report. I looked at it. Uh, what is the framework? How is the structure? There's got to be an ability to be, uh, raise it at, to a superior without any sanctions being visited at a very high level. And any um, follow-up has to be done sensitively and taken seriously without the individual being targeted or in any way uh, dealt with negatively, or assuming the complaint is merited. And there must be a follow-through. And if the harassment complaint is made out, there must be consequences. Now, in a place like police force, that's if there is a framework that's easy to do, outside, and it's not just the police force, the entire home team, and I know many other ministries follow similar processes. So the complaint goes direct to the very senior person in the ministry, usually a senior person in the HR, and uh, they deal with it, bypassing the usual channels. And uh, an anonymity is uh, given for the complainant until it becomes necessary to proceed further. Outside, it's of course uh, in companies that are big companies, there are small companies, there are different practices. It's not going to be easy to institute a single process for all, but I think we ought to try and again create a mindset change. So that, so workplace, uh, fairness, uh, no discrimination, protection. Then if you go back to caregiving, it is both easy and not so easy in the sense that uh, you want to create a support system or care network system, you want to put in the medical facilities. I think some of it is doable through policy initiatives. And some of it, um, which requires mindset changes, which requires greater participation of say, men in giving care, it's going to take time in our society. Another aspect of it would be uh, we talked about finances. We all agree, you know, there's got to be a recognition, a financial recognition. Is it easy to do? Is it not so easy to do? At one level, it's easy to do in the sense that, you know, you just decide how much and uh, you try and put the money aside. At another level, it's uh, affordability of the entire state and state's finances. How much can you afford? And those are serious questions. I mean, you know, it, finances are not limitless, so how much can you afford? Those are hard questions too. And so you, you have various trade-offs. We have to uh, look at those carefully and try and uh, do the best we can. I, I'm just giving you three examples, but there are many others. Yeah. Excellent, thank you. May I turn to Ms. Her, and as a reminder, what do you think are uh, is perhaps the easiest to effect and what might be the greatest challenge? 
Sure. I think, honestly, the easiest way to do it is um, to look at ourselves, right? So we need to read more. We need to learn more. We need to speak more to the women in our lives, you know, our wives, our daughters, our colleagues. We really just need to talk to them, find out what their experiences are, what their challenges are, what their struggles are, to really understand, you know, what, why, why, you know, some of the issues that we've been discussing today, why are they such big issues and big problems and challenges for the women uh, in our lives? And I think, uh, you know, just, just, just going to them and, you know, just really understanding, uh, putting ourselves in their shoes, you know, put, put, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of uh, women. Um, I think that's something that that's the easiest thing that each one of us can do. Uh, find out what they need, find out what they want. Um, and then everything else will flow from there, whether it's, you know, legislation, whether it's policy changes, whether it's changes that you make as a business leader to your organization, uh, or even to your own household, you know, changes that you can make, you know, uh, maybe talk to your wife, find out, you know, whether she's struggling, whether she needs help, um, how, what can you do to actually help her uh, juggle at home and, you know, and, you know, can you pick up the children, just, just simple things like that. Um, and I think that that is a very, very good first step. And I, I, I really do hope that people do, do come across and, you know, and, and do, do that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I think um, we've got about 10 minutes and I am going to turn to um, schools as a site of socialization. Um, and there are a set of questions around whether or not schools are reinforcing stereotypes. Um, we had something of a question, something um, of a question about single sex schools earlier, um, but there's a set of questions around sex education in schools, reinforcing stereotypes. Um, what are your thoughts about this as a parent, um, Ms. Her? Well, I mean, you know, my children are still young. Um, so, you know, I have all this to look forward to as they grow up. Um, you know, I think uh, just staying involved and uh, having both parents, you know, we're lucky enough to have both parents involved. And, you know, my husband is very involved in, um, in uh, you know, the discussions that we have with the children. Um, just, you know, keeping the communication open with our kids um, and, you know, talking to them. And again, you know, just keeping the communication open. Uh, finding out what um, what their friends are saying, or not not asking them to report on their friends, but you know, discuss some of the ideas and some of the co topics of conversation that they have in school. Uh, I think this can be a very uh, good first um, step and first way of catching you know some of these more toxic uh, attitudes that might you know our children might be exposed to at school, and then you know just not scolding them or telling them what they should believe, but, you know, to have a proper, you know, more grown up and uh, mature conversation about it. I think this is the role that we parents can actually play in that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, perhaps um, one last question for the minister before I attempt a summary of a very rich and diverse conversation, uh, which is a task in itself, but I shall try. The question for Minister is, um, what then is the action plan for progress um, from this point on? Hi. Uh, Prof, uh, you know, I, in response to specific questions, will we be doing this or will we be doing that? I told you, look, uh, I'm unable to commit for obvious reasons until, you know, the government comes up and finalizes the policy. Uh, and many of these issues are still in discussion. There are serious trade-offs. Uh, uh, what kind of trade-offs? I said, can I come back to the uh, point on uh, uh, parental leave, for example? 
what are the trade-offs? If you looked at it as a discrete issue, it's a no-brainer. You know, you must give parental leave for both parents and you must mandate it and make it done. And there are countries which do it and do it successfully. But what are the trade-offs for us? Our economy is structured very differently. Base is small, small place. Uh, we depend on investments coming in. That's a little bit different from, say, Scandinavian countries or European countries with a much larger base and a different kind of economy. So for an investor, he's not concerned about your parental leave policies per se or your social policies. He is concerned with what is it going to cost me if I go to Singapore? Do I put it in Singapore or do I put it in a competitor country? And uh, so there is an underlying economy which has to be attractive for investors because our local economy is just not big enough. Our external you know, uh, economy is three and a half, four times the size of the internal economy. So you have to then ask, okay, if I impose this cost on the employer, will we still get the investments? And if we don't get the investments, who does it affect most? It affects everybody, men and women and the economy, and ultimately the children as well. So these are the sort of trade-offs that uh, policymakers have to deal with because in as discrete issues, each one is uh, a no-brainer. But when you put it together, the total cost, the package, who is going to pay for it? How do we pay for it? Is it through a general policy of taxation? Is it through uh, other ways? Or do we just pass it on to the employers? How do we do it? I mean, I just explained that to say what are the trade-offs that are being have to be thought through, not just financial, but also social policy trade-offs. But fundamentally, this is a very serious, very important cause, the equality of women. We cannot deviate from that. And I feel strongly about it. I feel passionately about it. My colleagues feel very strongly and passionately about it. And it is important that we set this direction. You asked what next. We have these conversations. In terms of a roadmap, it's the discussions, policy discussions, policy formulation, announcements, white paper, debate in parliament, see how much of this we can put through. Now, what we can't do now, as uh, uh, Ms. He said earlier, you don't close the book and say we have done. This is, a, in some ways, a job that is never fully done. You keep plugging away. As a society, we have to have that approach that we have to keep pushing on this. We have to keep plugging on it. Whatever we can do, we do now. What we can't do, we don't say that's the end of the story. What more needs to be done? And separately, the mindset change, I said earlier, it's going to take a long time and we have to start young. And MOE is already doing a fair bit of it. It will add on to that. So that's how I see the roadmap. This is an important cause. It's as much a cause for men as well as women. And we all have to be putting our shoulders to the wheel and pushing on this. Thank you, Minister. Um, perhaps I could give Ms. Her a chance for any final words that you'd like to share with the audience as well. Sure. Um, you know, I do agree again um, that, you know, uh, of course, you know, men and women do have to have to do their parts. Um, however, I'm not so sure that it's uh, equality uh, versus financial cost. It's, you know, uh, from what I from what I understand, you know, 
diversity actually helps performance overall and it helps everybody, you know, it helps businesses, it helps families, it also helps men and women. Um, so I think it, it's a bit of a false dichotomy here. But, um, you know, coming back to actionable plans, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, each one of us has, you know, roles to play in finding out more about, um, you know, the, the, the issues at hand, you know, because, you know, even my lived experience as a woman is not going to be same as, you know, the, the, the woman next door. Um, so I think, you know, uh, we, this, this is the role that we can play. Uh, and, you know, then, you know, we start talking about this and we ha start having, you know, meaningful and constructive discussions, uh, you know, at the policy level, at the le legislative level, you know, in parliament um, and, you know, amongst our constituents, amongst our families. And I think that's that's just how each one of us can really take charge of, um, you know, the situation. And I, I hope that, you know, women together with men uh, can work together and uh, really come 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 together and and. and just, 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 just for fortune path for, for women in Singapore and you know um, our place in the world as well. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much indeed, uh, Minister Shamugam and Ms. Her. Um, I think we've had a very stimulating, wide-ranging, diverse um, discussion um, centered very much on how we can better the lot for women in Singapore. I think we've covered um, lots of ground. We've talked about different social groups even within. Uh, the large monolith called women, uh, because we've looked at, you know, sort of single women, we've looked at um, foreign domestic workers, we've talked about um, minority groups within uh, the broader uh, swath of women as such, so different social groups, even within the group we call women. We've talked about different sites where gender um, experiences converge and collide. And that ranges from the boardroom to the workplace, um, to the media, whether traditional or social media. We've talked about schools. Um, interestingly, we didn't touch on NS, but that did emerge in an earlier session. So um, probably enough said there. So multiple sites where you know, gender um, uh, relations are played out as such. We've talked about ways in which um, you know, we might begin to change mindsets. Um, and, you know, that ranges from the symbolic, uh, you know, changing the pledge, for example, a very powerful symbol, but a symbol nonetheless, um, to um, hard legislative change, as well as policy um, instruments that can be used. And those policy instruments, in some senses, the, the legislative changes are, they're not easy to effect, but they are concrete and specific whether it's to do with um, you know, sexual assault or um, exploitation, harassment, et cetera. Those are concrete, specific, and can be addressed and have been addressed. But the policy areas are broad and wide ranging from parental leave to um, care, um, recognizing care, invisible care, to um, you know, supporting workforce re-entry programs, um, to strengthening, uh, you know, childcare, elder care, etc. Um, so there's there's a huge plethora of areas where policy can actually um, signal the seriousness with which we are approaching the challenges that Singapore society faces. And of course, it's not just Singapore society. Um, I think finally, I would say that um, you know, beyond the symbolic, beyond the constitutional, legislative, policy changes, um, the marketplace has a role to play as well. 
um, you know, businesses have to take this seriously and they don't have to always just follow legislation. Um, if, if they believe in a cause, then I think, you know, um, putting the monies where their mouths are, are equally important. And so the combination of government, of market and of community, including community groups, I think is what is going to shift the needle. And um, that includes both men and women across these sectors of society as such. So I would like very much, um, you know, in a normal setting, I would invite you to put your hands together uh, to thank our two speakers, Minister Shamugam and uh, Ms. Herting Ru, who have spent uh, an hour and a half with us sharing their thoughts and their hopes. Um, but in the absence of applause, we'll do it in our own silent way at home. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Minister Shamuga, Ms. Ha, and Professor Kong for just such a wide-ranging and provocative dialogue session. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now come to the end of the conference. I would like to extend my sincere thanks to all the speakers and moderators for an outstanding job sharing with us your knowledge, insights, and experiences on how Singapore can push the gender equality agenda forward. Thank you also to the audience for your active participation in the discussions. I hope that these are conversations we will all continue to have after today. While many important points were raised over the course of today's conference, there are three main takeaways from the discussions that stand out. First, while the share of women in the workforce has increased dramatically, women continue to face barriers in advancing in the workplace. This, in part, is because of the roles men and women traditionally play at home. Our panelists suggested more paternity-specific leave and increased diversity and inclusion work policies. But are these top-down approaches enough to change ingrained gendered norms? Second, caregivers are primarily women who play an important role in society in looking after our elderly and children. We need to recognize the value of this contribution. But what is the dollar value of caregiving? Is love and respect enough? Third, the digital world has created an even larger landscape for women to be harassed and violated. Legislations help, but we also need mindsets towards women and men to evolve. What needs to be done to drive such change? Whose responsibility is it to ensure that this change happens? Is it governments, organizations, or individuals? As we conclude our day, I'd like to thank our donors again for their generous support. Today's conference would not be possible without it. Special thanks also to the event's lead coordinator, Vani, Jasmine Ng, who's head of registration, and the rest of the IPS team for all your hard work in ensuring that this conference runs smoothly. This is despite having to pivot from a hybrid conference to a fully virtual one in less than two weeks. Much appreciation too to Liang Kai-Sing and her public, public affairs team, as well as Lo Hansen and the IPS corporate associates team for your help in making this conference a success. Ladies and gentlemen, before you leave, please take a few minutes to complete the IPS feedback form. You may access the form by scanning the QR code shown on the screen. You can also find the link in the conference chat. Your comments will go a long way in helping us to improve future programs. Please be reminded that this dialogue session has been recorded and will be available to watch on the conference platform until the 9th of June. 
You will also be able to watch the recording on the IPS YouTube webpage after that. The speaker's presentation slides will also be available on the IPS events page next week. You can click on the link on the conference chat to access the page for more updates. Thank you very much again for joining us today and have a good evening.